You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals Podcast. What up, what up? I want to welcome you all back to the Socks and Sandals podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy, Emmanuel. I'm back in the building, back at K-Boo, whipping it up, and I have a very special guest with me. She is a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a master strategist, an amazing leader, an inspiration, and overall phenomenal woman. She is highly educated with a master's degree. She thrived in corporate America in various roles that pertain to fundraising, however, She's raising funds for her own endeavors now. She is not only the executive direct executive director, but also co-founder of Elso Inc. here in Portland, Oregon. I present to you the wonderful, the talented, and the brilliant Sprinta Brown. Sprinta, say what's up to the people. What's up, people? How you doing today? I'm doing great today. It's beautiful outside. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sunny skies. Mm-hmm. High 50s. Yes. That means a lot to Portland, Oregon. That means we can get outside and pretend <laughs> like it's the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, I want to thank you for coming through. You're welcome. It's been a long time coming. Yes. I've been waiting. <laughs> Two years. I've been running. <laughs> <laughs> You've been running. <laughs> trying, to, trying to hide. Right. Nah, show. but, it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's about that time, mm-hmm. long overdue, and you got a lot to say, a lot to share, and uh, you are inspiration. Everything I said, I meant that. Thank you. You know, so you are inspiration for black people, black women, black girls, um, all over. And so we have to share this story, Yeah, you know? And you're so, right. um, and, but you know, you, you're out there, you're in the field, you're in, mm-hmm. the, you're in these streets, mm-hmm. you're doing your thing. Yeah. And so I'm just glad to get you on the mic and get this recorded and get this encapsulated in time and history. Yeah. So, um, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and just what's a typical day in the life of Sprinter Brown. Okay, so um, my name is Sprenavasa Essene Brown, and I am born and raised right here in Portland, Oregon. Um, I grew up all around the city. Um, as a kid, we lived in Troutdale, we lived in East Portland, but the area that I call home is right off of Eighth in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, Alberta Arts, I think they call it oh, now. <laughs> Don't no no no. Oh, you know no. I had to throw that in there so we could <laughs> just hold that for a Arts moment District. of what what was and what is right. Oh my goodness. Um, Eighth in Alberta was my great grandmother's house. My grandfather lived off of, um, Killingsworth and Mallory. So um, you know what I consider the 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 heart of the black community of Portland. Right. Yeah, and so now I spend um, my day-to-day running Camp ELSO. Uh, that stands for Experience Life Science Outdoors. Mm-hmm. And our mission is to teach and frame science, STEAM, and nature-based education through a lens that centers and elevates the lived experiences, the ways of knowing, and the individual needs of black and brown communities. Mm, mm, mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. So... Tell me about how many years has it been since Mm -hmm. ELSO was established? 
We got started in um, the winter of 2015. I think that's when we officially submitted the paperwork filing with the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And then we started our first program summer of 2016. We um, we started the Explorers program, which is now the Wayfinders program. Yeah. Um, something I, I, I can talk about later. But basically, yeah, we'll we've been that, our sure. own on our own journey of trying to decolonize our language and how we talk about our work. And so mm. that first summer, 2016, we took about um, 12 to 16 kids uh, in. I think they were all between kindergarten and second grade um, on field trips um, across the metro area and across the Northwest. Mm -hmm. That's dope. Yeah. Now let's, let's rewind it back. So Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to talk about your journey before getting to Elso, before starting your nonprofit. Because there's always a lot of things that go on in a person's Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. to step out from corporate America, from everything that they've done Mm -hmm. academic-wise, and to go into a field that is not necessarily supported by their their education, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm Because you don't necessarily get educated to run a nonprofit or run a business unless you actually major in that. Mm -hmm. And so... um, Tell us about what you were doing before you started. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Okay, so um, I feel like there have been I've been doing a few different things and they've all been disconnected um, and yet they've all worked together to to get me to this place and where we are right now. So mm-hmm. um, most immediately before um, starting ELSO, I was working in um, in advancement, which is development, communication, in higher, higher education speak is what that is. It just means fundraising, mm-hmm. um, community outreach, uh, community relations, public relations. And so I was running the alumni program for a local um, private school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, And uh, what else was I doing? So I was also um, serving on a bunch of boards, doing community work, um, serving on boards, volunteering, trying to show up in my community. And this was all um, about around the time that I finished graduate school. So mm-hmm. I left from college. I went to Oberlin um, for undergrad, and I got a degree in biology and African-American studies. Mm. I studied what I liked. Right. It was a liberal arts school. Okay. I graduated in 06, right around the time of the recession. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I pretty much spent those next 10 years trying to dig myself out of the financial hole that a lot of us with student loan debt was For in sure, yeah. and trying to figure out like, what do I, what do I do? What do I like to do? What's important to me? Mm. Um, Tell me about that biology major yeah. in biology and African-American studies. Yeah. That's, that's not a common, that's not mm-hmm. peanut butter and jelly, right? There. That's not a common <laughs> uh, combination. So mm-hmm. you said you, you study what you like. Yeah. Um, what was it like? Like your advisors or people yeah. that you went to school with, did anybody question your motive of doing mm. Two different disciplines like yeah. that that weren't connected? Um, they didn't, but I, I was intentional about choosing a school where that was okay, okay and that the norm was very much for students to pursue what they were interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, liberal arts, you study a little bit of everything. I yeah. think there were students that we were very used to seeing, um, those super seniors who had been there for four, five, six years, just working on lots of degrees, get, just getting their education. Yeah. And I um, I definitely went for that. Um, I also 
started off with the on the pre-med track. I wanted to be a doctor. Okay. So I started off thinking that I was going to finish undergrad and then hopefully go to medical school, maybe become a surgeon because I had done a lot of shadowing in high school. And that's something that I always wanted to do was to work in the science field. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a doctor was one of the main um fields that I had exposure to it's one of the few things that I heard um, that um, I heard and saw black people doing Mm -hmm. you know I didn't know any black nurses I didn't know any black radiologists I didn't know people doing these other things but I knew a few black doctors Mm -hmm. I was intentional about shadowing one of them she was a surgeon she's still a surgeon leader here and I saw her I saw how dope she was she would come in perform surgeries in her platform shoes and I was like that's what I want to be like she was fly she was was flying she was educated and she was beautiful and I was like that's that's what I want to do so I showed up with that image in my head um at at college and um so I studied sciences and I love the sciences um and I also felt like I left high school with a gap in my education Mm. um I did not have any um I felt like I got a very surface level education around black history mm-hmm. uh, around black identity black literature all that and i was hungry for it mm. so um oberlin had a strong african-american studies department um and i knew that i was going to be able to learn from teachers that would um push me in my thinking help me understand my blackness our black experience and help me ground get myself grounded in that mm-hmm. um I was coming from a um, a private school where that was very much de- like void. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to study science, what I wanted to pursue my career in. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to learn more about um, blackness, black people, black literature, black everything. Yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up doing those two things. That's dope. And I was dancing. And so I put into a search engine. I don't know what website this was. I haven't seen it since. But I put in biology program, African-American studies, and African dance. And Oberlin College was the number one school that came up. Really? Yep. That's some SEO for it. I don't <laughs> yes. know how they <laughs> they managed to do that, but that's, that's what's up. Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. And so Oberlin came up, and was that basically yep. – Number one choice, only choice. It so they had a, and I think they still have this. They had a fly-in program um, for what they would call minority students. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't like to use that word, but right. they had this fly-in program where they were bringing students in from across the country. They fly you out there, pay for it, a bunch of students of color, and we would just get to experience being at college for um, this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I had the best time of my life. Really, and it was a amazing i mean just the learning environment like i love learning Mm -hmm. i love being on college campuses i love the energy i love the buzz that you feel when you're around people who are um learning new things trying new things like i I just love that environment for sure and i felt like oberlin had that plus i had all of these beautiful eclectic brown people Mm -hmm. and um i was hungry for that after leaving from portland Mm. and so Mm -hmm. i saw Mm -hmm. oberlin i went and visited i think um Georgetown and NYU and I was like I don't want to be any place upstate New York is too cold <laughs> and Georgetown just it didn't feel right it felt a little bit too kind of preppy and and mm. um not not right yeah. it wasn't quite right and Oberlin had a little bit of quirkiness to it okay um, it's more down to earth yeah for sure yep yeah 
So, and I like the history of the school. For sure. Uh-huh. So tell me about the biology part, mm-hmm. because I feel like the biology, you majoring in that, but yeah. not necessarily pursuing that all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, what what roadblocks did you face to not yeah. pursue that outside of college? Mm-hmm. And what role did you major in, in your in biology and that experience help play a part into you co-founding Elso? Yeah. So um, I have this really strong memory of uh, being in high school and being uh, um, one of three black girls in my class. Mm -hmm. Um, Two of us happened to be in the same science um, class. And so we took uh, advanced biology together. And um, I had this teacher we had went through the uh, this process of developing these science experiments where you come up with your hypothesis, you set up the experiment, you test it. They're trying to get us ready for college and being able to design your own um, experiments and collect that data was a skill set we need to have. And I remember at the end of my experiment, I remember um, struggling through some pieces of it, not having the amount of data that was needed for me to draw some really good conclusions. And I remember coming to my teacher and sharing it and feeling like um, I did the best that I could, but I knew that there were some some areas where I messed up. So what I remember her saying to me, um, and I, I, my memory, you know, it's been years now, and so I don't know if it was that same moment or if it happened later in that school year. But I remember her telling me that I wasn't very good at science and that I should think about studying some other things. Wow. Um, now, mind you, I'm at a um, private independent school, mm-hmm. um, and I'm in an advanced biology class. Mm. And I remember walking away from that experience mm. And feeling hollow and angry. Mm. Hollow because I felt like she didn't see all of me and that there was a piece of me that she just didn't see. She didn't see how hard I worked. She didn't see um, my passion and excitement and curiosity around science. Um, And she didn't see my growth potential as a learner. She didn't see your value, Mm -mm. period. Not at all. She didn't value Mm -mm. you as a person. Um, And I remember being angry and deciding that I'm going to study science. Mm-hmm. I don't care what she says. Like mm-hmm. she she doesn't know me um and she doesn't know what I'm capable of and I don't care whether I'm good at it or not. I'm still going to study it because I like it and I'm interested in it and I want to do it. Um so I went into college. Um I remember declaring as a science major. Mm-hmm. I remember being so proud of the fact that um, I was able to get all of my prerequisites done to get into the program. Um, But I quickly looked around the room and saw that there was maybe five of us black students out of the hundred plus um, students that were in our science courses Mm. um, and who were declaring as majors. And Pretty much what um, what became the norm for me is um, feeling like I had to fight for the right to be there, for my place to to stay there in school, in the program, um, and to be valued and to be seen. Um, I remember that we only had one professor of color 
it was a woman. It was a Latina woman, um, Latina, and she was half Filipino. And we didn't have her until we were juniors. Mm. And when I saw her and when I got to take class with her, that was the course that stood out the most for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the course I was most excited about and I was most engaged with the content. Um, even though I think it was a microbiology course, it was extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever scored better than a B minus in that class, mm-hmm. but I loved it and I loved her and her teaching style. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, it wasn't until much later that I realized that what it was was the fact that she was a woman of color and that m- us having that shared experience and me seeing her and her being there was what um, helped motivate me and helped in that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, during those four years of undergrad, um, two things happened. I, um, I decided that I was no longer going to be a pre-med major. Um, similar to that experience that I had in high school with the white female um, professor, um, I had the healthcare academic advisor tell me that, you know, I wasn't good enough to be there. Like my grades weren't high enough. You're not working hard enough. You're going to have to hit this in order to do it. And um I felt like that message was the one that was always reaffirmed. You're not working hard enough. You're not good enough. Here is the line. If you're not above this line, you can't do it. You're it's not so going to succeed. It's so backwards, bro. So yeah. for, there's two things that, that comes to my mind. So mm-hmm. the first thing is um, when you talk about the story that happened in high school, it reminds me of Malcolm X. Mm. And when he was in class and he, he said he wanted to go, he wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. And his teacher told him, well, you should. You should just work as like work with your hands. Yeah. You could be a, a mason or you mm. could be something, a carpenter mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Like there's Negroes that make good money doing that, but yeah. you're not you're not going to be a lawyer. Yeah. And Malcolm was just dejected. He was just like, "Are you how are you going to tell me that I'm not? Yeah. Just because I'm a Negro is because I'm black, you know." Mm-hmm. And um, the second thing that comes to mind is when I went to Texas Southern, mm-hmm. it wasn't the greatest school, but as you know, like. Growing up in Portland, like we need some blackness. We need some reaffirming. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know how much we need it until we get in the presence of it. And we're like, oh, my goodness. That that was missing. Yeah. And so (laughs) and so I was struggling Mm -hmm. and and I I was a business major, majored in marketing. But like some of my I'm not really the most like mathematic type dude. And I'll be honest about it. Mm -hmm. Like I struggle with math. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, it, it was so bad that my senior year, like I was taking my sophomore year of math over because I, yeah. I had like a C minus mm-hmm. and I can't, gra- they, they won't let you graduate with a C minus. Mm-hmm. But it was like, it was a few classes. It was mainly accounting. Mm-hmm. I was struggling. Yeah. My professor was like, he came up to me and he did the opposite of what they was doing mm-hmm. to you in college. He's mm-hmm. like, look, man, we're going to make sure you get through this. Whatever help you need, mm-hmm. I'm going to help you get through because we all we got. And I'm going to make sure that you get the grade that you need so that yeah. you can go on and you do whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yo, I've never had a teacher or yeah. professor like have my back like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he, he knew that I wasn't that good, but mm-hmm. that wasn't the point. Yep. The yep. point to him was, I don't care if you're not that good, mm-hmm. but you're going to do great things regardless, mm-hmm. even if you're not good at this thing in particular. And so like, it's, it's so important that we have that and that our yeah. kids have that. And I feel like that's what you guys have done. That's what you are doing with Elsa. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And I think that that was that message where, you know, because of the lens that she was coming from. And part of me, part of me looks back and I and I get that you want to make students, you want to push them. And science is rigorous. Medical school is rigorous. And so you want to push them 
to work hard and to be realistic about like, you know, the percentage of students that make it, but you don't lead with that. And you don't, and I feel like no one saw my growth potential. None of my science professors said, hey, this is what you're struggling with, but this is what you're doing well. And let's make sure you get the resources. Look, when, when, uh, when George W. was struggling Mm -hmm. in college, when Joe Biden was getting seized, (laughs) didn't nobody tell them they wasn't good enough. Right. You know, so we, we know that, you know, there are exceptions that are made or there are just people that just get pushed along just because, well, you know, you might not have the best grades, but, yeah. you know, we might see something for yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And so it can be done. Yeah. And so they even like they'll they'll justify it by, well, statistically, yeah. you know, but. Right, right. We know, we know what it is. Yeah. So is. so after that, I just gave up. I was like, I'm not doing pre-med anymore. Man. I'm not doing pre-med. I'm not doing science anymore. I love science, yeah. but it's just not for me. And mm. I, I think it also speaks to the fact that I had very little exposure to other things that you could do in healthcare, in science, beyond just be a doctor or be a nurse. Mm. And so once I saw that those two options weren't likely to work out, I didn't I didn't say, well, let me let me explore some of this. My advisor didn't suggest other things. They were Mm. just like, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this. Wow. Yeah. And so the the other thing that happened, though, is I found Kellyanne. So okay. Kellyanne is our, our co-founder, Kellyanne Richardson. Um, shout out to Kellyanne. Shout out to Kelly. So she's a um, PhD scientist now mm. and um, is also um, somebody that we we support each other and we were each other's kind of um, partner um, throughout that undergraduate experience. Mm-hmm. And our stories mimicked each other. We had similar experiences for sure. Yeah. So Kellyanne, you met her mm-hmm. what, freshman year? Mm-hmm. Okay. Freshman year, we lived in the same dorm, a few doors down from each other. Okay. Um, we were super close. She grew up in the D.C., Virginia area. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that she and I would often talk about just in reflecting years later on our college experience is the fact that we did not have representation. We didn't have those teachers, those role models to look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, the higher up we got in sciences as the four years went on, the more in the the minority we became and mm. the more otherwise we started to feel. Mm. Um, I think we had one chemistry teacher that was uh, Asian, um, Southeast Asian man, and maybe one African-American professor, and that was it. Um, over those four years in full you know, spectrum of classes that we had to take from physics to chemistry to um, biology. Okay. So um, she and I would often talk about how we wish we would have seen more people that look like us, mm-hmm. how we wish we would have had advocates who fought for us and who helped us to be there and to help us navigate the system to know that there was resources like tutoring and like other things available to us mm-hmm. um, and to, to help us. Um, find pathways if our if our dream our one thing that we had fixated on could fell through yeah yeah so 2006 you graduate mm-hmm. um and then 2015 Elsa was birthed but there was yes. some work that went on before that yeah so tell me about how you and your co-founders came together mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. are we missing one nope just the two of us yeah okay yep. so you you and Kellyanne mm-hmm. um tell me what was going on with your life 
a little bit what was going on with her in 2013, yeah. 2014 to mm-hmm. lead up to mm-hmm. launching Camp Hustle? I think the the biggest thing that happened for me is that I had, at 2010, um, I got married in 2009, mm-hmm. and in 2010, um, we got pregnant, I got pregnant, we had Jackson. Mm-hmm. And becoming a, a mother shifted so much of what I thought around um, preparing for education mm. um, and thinking about how do I set my child up for success, for future success, um, and how do I make sure that he has experiences that are empowering for him. Yeah. So I remember, I think in 2014, he would have been about four or five years old, mm. and I started looking around trying to think, okay, he's, he's almost school age. He's going to go to kindergarten. Kindergarten's out for the summer. Where am I going? Where am I going to send him? What are we going to do for the summer? Right. I work. Jesse works. You mm-hmm. know, like we can't just take off of work for three months. So what are we going to do for the summer? And shout my, out to Jesse. Shout, shout out, out to Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> and my um, my son, he was very into being outside. Um, he liked science. He liked engineering. He was creative. He was not so much into sports yet. Mm-hmm. That's changed a lot. He's into basketball now, soccer, okay. all the sports Let's track. Go Jackson, yeah. but, <laughs> but he that wasn't him yeah. um, as a five and six-year-old. Yeah. And so I started researching, like, well, what are the science camps I can send him to? Um, this is when I'm learning about the opportunity gap in education and how it's racialized and how black and brown children don't have the same access to quality summer programming. So I'm doing all this research um, as a mom trying to make sure that I'm setting my son up to not fall victim to that opportunity gap and that summer learning loss that happens. And in that research, I realized that either I can't afford the camps that are um, rigorous and educational and are going to give him opportunities to to still practice his skills that he's working on in kindergarten, first grade, Um or the camps are, or the camps are too far away. We can't access them, um, or the ones he aren't interested in, where the kids of color are, which is a lot of the sports camps and community programs. So I'm like looking around. I'm like, there's no program that is for kids of color that gives them a lot of science and um, opportunities to get outside and do these different things. So that's what that's what I was looking at at the so time. So you so you seen a gap, mm-hmm. and you filled it in. I did. And so yeah. so I started doing some research and I started asking around and trying to find out um, what are the different organizations that are providing summer programs, summer camps for young kids. Now, what I noticed was that once you start getting to middle school, high school age, mm-hmm. there's lots of programs that are exposing kids to environmental science and outdoors and adventure and, and just doing these different things, but not so much for younger kids. Mm-hmm. Um and it was important for our family that we give him the experience to be around more black and brown kids because mm-hmm. they, there weren't a lot of them at the school that he attends. Mm-hmm. So we wanted him to have an experience that affirmed who he was, that gave him a chance to learn and to maintain his, uh, his level of learning throughout the year, um, and that let him try and do some new things, things that we don't always get to get to do mm-hmm. as kids in a, in a more urban space. Yeah. And so yeah. that was, you said he was about four or five years old. Yeah. All yeah. right. And so yeah. you guys 
started putting your heads together, mm-hmm. making a plan. Yep. So we, so I called Kelly. I just remember, I think it was a Sunday afternoon yeah. and I was really excited. So the, the way that mine works, my mind works is if I get an idea, I fixate on it. I start mm-hmm. doing my research. I start making plans. I start yeah. writing business plans before I even talk to anybody about <laughs> it. I'm doing all this work of work. Right. So by the time I'm ready to talk to her about it, I've already done all this work of research kind of just silently. Um, so you answered all the all the questions. A, a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of them. Or at least I identified <laughs> what were the questions, what are the things we need to figure out next. Right, right. And so I went to her and I was just like um, – we need to do this. We need to support kids of color. We need to have it aligned with um, our interests and passion because she and I were both still interested in science. We wanted to do something that would make a difference for future kids of color who Mm -hmm. wanted to study in STEM fields. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that she and I already shared that passion. Um, And so it just, it seemed like a natural fit. I remember she and I talked and brainstormed like, well, do we serve younger kids first or should we work with high school kids? Mm -hmm. What should we do? Should it be a summer camp? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to hold it? So we just started asking those questions and I went out into the community and tried to figure out and pull together resources and reach out to parents and say, do you think this is needed? What should this look like? Um, We've always tried to be, uh, have parent voice and be community led and just make sure that we are not um, kind of gathering information that's going to validate what we think to be true, but Mm -hmm. really going out and saying, is this a community need and how is this um, making a difference? How can this make a difference in our Mm -hmm. community? So you guys launched that thing and Mm -hmm. um, let everybody know, like, what type of events, what type of field trips or, you know, where are you guys going? Where are you taking these kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So right now, our Wayfinders program um, takes kids in kindergarten through eighth grade on um, experiential learning field trips during the summer um, across the Pacific Northwest. So we have a session on photojournalism. Um, During that session, the kids might go to um, two of our national wildlife refuges. Um, They might go to Mount Hood National Forest. Mm -hmm. Um, We bring in community partners and community educators because this program is an affinity space for black and brown kids. What that means is that all of the kids who participate in our program have to identify as black, brown, multiracial Mm -hmm. um, people of color. Mm -hmm. And so we load them up. So you mm -hmm. mean to tell me you're excluding white children? For this program, yes. Mm. And um, how do you how do you get away with that? How do I get away in white Portland, Oregon? Yes. So part of the way that um, we are doing that and why is because it's in our mission. I'm being facetious. I really, you know, it is what it is. But just (laughs) for everyone that's listening, it's in our mission. Our mission is to center Black and Brown communities Mm -hmm. and. What we think that means, and particularly with this program, um, when it comes to identity affirmation, is that um, the kids, the people who we are surrounding these kids with, their camp guides, um, our staff, our board, all needs to reflect them. So when you think about meeting the needs of kids of color, um, they need to see role models that look like us. Like science is clear about that. Um, 
we got social factors that contribute to that and that validate the need for black and brown kids to see educators, mentors, teachers that look like them. And that especially for black youth, it... um, it makes a difference in their outcomes. It makes a difference in their confidence, their um, leadership development, all of those things. So we decided that DEI wouldn't be a statement. It wouldn't be a lens that we do our work, but that it would be an integral piece, piece that our organization would build, be built around um, centering black and brown children and their needs. And so when you say DEI, let everybody know what that mm-hmm. is. Because everybody, Diversity, I mean, in Portland, true. that's like a, it's a big thing. It's a thing, right? Because we can a, just catching up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really big thing. It's a really big deal. Um, and I hate to say it, but the truth is a lot of um, liberal so-called woke white folks, they just salivate over DEI and mm-hmm. everything that comes with it. So mm-hmm. just let everybody know what that is. So DEI is the shorthand way of saying diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so diversity um, is having people who have d- difference um, together. A lot of people who, who can um, represent lots of different um, lenses, right? Mm-hmm. That's diversity. Mm-hmm. Equity means that each group... Each person gets what they need to have the same opportunities. So it's different from equality. Equality means same, same. Equity means different to level the playing field. Um, And inclusion means that everyone has a seat at the table. So I like to think of the um, King Arthur and the round table, meaning that um, it's around consensus. It's around community. It's around that. Um, the fact that each person has access to decision making and power. Mm -hmm. So, um, Camp Elsa would be considered a a community-based organization. Mm -hmm. And we have been historically, we always have been led by folks of color. Yeah. And I love that part about it. And when you asked me to serve on the leadership mm-hmm. board and actually be on the board, mm-hmm. of all, I was like, yo, I'm with this. Yeah. Even though, like, I'm not the most environmental. Like, that's that's not my thing. I don't mm-hmm. hike. Mm-hmm. I don't camp. <laughs> yeah. But I am pro-black. Yes. <laughs> and I am like, <laughs> if somebody's helping out our kids. Yeah. Like consistently and like making a concerted effort to do that, mm-hmm. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. And so I I was honored to serve the the years that I did, and yeah. I'm glad to be able to see and witness it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So y'all don't know, man. Sprinter, she's talking all soft, and Sprinter <laughs> is a beast, y'all. <laughs> Sprinter is a real beast. When I would sit with you on those site visits, yes. and we would talk to whatever decision makers mm-hmm. or the mouthpiece to the decision makers. Yeah. And you know they they asking all these questions, and to be honest, most of them was like older white people, mm-hmm. and and to me it's just like yo, this is crazy. Like we have this organization, mm-hmm. nonprofit. Unfortunately, with, with nonprofit, like you have to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to raising money, like a lot of times you're reaching out to foundations looking to get grants, and then you have these site visits, mm-hmm. and it's just like it just. Me sitting there and just watching you do your thing. I'm I'm mad. I'm yeah. I'm I'm be honest. I was mad. I'm like, yo, why do we gotta say why do we gotta explain mm-hmm. ourselves to these white but it's just mm-hmm. like it is what it is and you do it so graciously mm-hmm. and you do it so powerfully and mm-hmm. so matter of factly and you share your story and you and you make that message clear yeah. and I'm sitting like, yo, is is are they really gonna you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's just like the way that you lay it out, it's it's a work of art. 
Thank you. It's a work of art. It's it's something that I've had to practice and hone, and I feel I still feel like um, it's not good enough. You know, I'm not there yet. You know, like I'm. I just took a workshop this past week on storytelling, mm. and I walked away from that workshop thinking, okay, how do I how do I tell our organization story um, without centering myself? How do I center the communities that we serve? How do we center these youth? And so it's something that you constantly are practicing. Is yeah. like, how do we tell our story? How do I do it in two minutes, ten minutes, thirty minutes? You know. Right. But the thing, the yeah. thing that that I think about is mm-hmm. like. I shouldn't have to, when they would ask for that DEI mm-hmm. statement, it's like, mm-hmm. what part of I created this for black and brown kids do you not understand? Why do you yes. need a formal statement yes. about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah. This is centering us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about that for a minute because yeah. I think, and it goes back to your earlier question around like, how do you create this camp this, that is an affinity space? Yeah. And, um, the short answer is it's because that's what kids of color need. Yeah. And all of the historically white-led and mainstream environmental organizations, science organizations, were not created to center the needs of children of color. Right. They were not created necessarily with kids of color as the main audience. Like they were created from a um, from a place of a white supremacist culture mm-hmm. and from a lens that is very very much dominant culture when you think about sciences. Mm-hmm. And so what our what our country, what our world I feel like is now waking up to is the fact that folks of color have to be in the center, um, and equity and inclusion are a necessity because we haven't always had a seat at the table. For sure. And so um, most of the the mainstream organizations are talking about DEI because they need to start doing it. Mm-hmm. Elsa was started from a place of we're going to center our community unapologetically. Mm-hmm. We're going to figure out what do our kids need in order to have a robust science and environmental education experience mm-hmm. and um and go about doing that and so we're still learning we're still figuring stuff out but we are constantly trying to decolonize the way that we teach Man. science but the coldest part about it is exactly what you're saying like mm-hmm. i'm starting it like once once i really got into the trenches with mm-hmm. you i started to realize yo these people really get worked up about dei yeah <laughs> and so and i'm just like and i'm now i'm i'm paying attention to it uh-huh and it's it's a thing yeah and so with that being said, because they say that that's what they want to do and they recognize mm-hmm. that it's necessary, mm-hmm. when I'm in those meetings, I'm just like, yo, say less. Like, there's nothing else that needs to be said. Yeah. You guys say you want to do DEI mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. You want to support organizations that are doing that. It's This is it. Yeah. There's nothing else to be said. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like we're doing everything that y'all said that y'all want to do yes. that you think that needs to be done. Uh-huh. We, we're solving that problem. Mm-hmm. Just give us the money. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Well, we got to prove it to you. you uh-huh. know? But I don't yeah. know. It, it has to be done. But yeah. talk about, um, well, I'll, I'll go this route first because you, you did mention white supremacy. Due, due to the existence of white supremacy, I feel like no one is who they should be. The mm. white person is way mm-hmm. too arrogant mm-hmm. um the non-white person has way a, a low self-esteem that is yeah. unwarranted mm-hmm. um the global minorities as i say mm-hmm. when you talk about decolonizing mm-hmm. language so the global minorities which are the white people they think that they're everything and they're everywhere and, and the world mm-hmm. revolves around them mm-hmm. naturally um they think that's how it should be yeah. 
the global majority, the non-white people, mm-hmm. we think that we're minorities and maybe even not even worthy of having a higher position or, or status in society, especially in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. We spend a majority of our lives responding and reacting to racism mm-hmm. and counteracting racism mm-hmm. if one is conscious about it. Can you share with us like how you prevent yourself from being emotionally depleted on a daily basis while doing this work? And just living your life as a black woman in America, not to mention Portland, Oregon, which is one of the whitest metropolitan cities in America. But how do you Mm. prevent yourself from being emotionally depleted? Because when I leave those meetings, I'm like, yo, if I got to if if you're going to ask her the same question Mm -hmm. a different way one more time, (laughs) you know, to be like, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think to be fair. I, I get emotionally depleted okay. all the time okay. um, on a weekly and sometimes daily basis. Mm. And I think um, it's what I do in those moments to help me come back to a place of balance and of self-care that I'm able to keep going and show up, Um, show up for the work, show up for community, show up for, for everything that's happening around this. Um, And so I think I, so I want to be clear about whiteness versus white people. For sure. Because I think um, whiteness is that um, social construct that has created this society where folks of color, black and brown communities, experience oppression at the, at the institutional system and personal level. For sure. And uh, white people benefit from the privilege of having and being able to access whiteness. Um, And it impacts both of us. And you said this, and I just want to reiterate that whether you're a person of color or a white person, we're all negatively impacted by the social construct of whiteness. And we're all negatively impacted by the fact that black and brown people, um, people of the African, Asian, you know, Latinx diaspora Mm -hmm. um, have been historically treated as less than. Um, I forget what you, what you, the question I was, was. I was asking you, how do you, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, how are you not emotionally depleted? Or yeah. if you are, like, so, how do you deal with that? I think one of the things that I try to do is have, um, and I, I struggle with this, but I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. I recognize the need for boundaries, mm-hmm. boundaries between my work and my personal time or family time. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're doing community work, when you're doing soul work, things that, um, inspire you and that that allow you to use your creativity and passion in a professional sense it's all consuming yeah. like you know i i wake up most days at three o'clock three thirty, and i have to stop myself from opening up my phone and working mm. i wake back up and get up at five o'clock every single day and mm. i start working up until six o'clock when i wake up my kids mm. and then we leave the house at seven and so in between getting ready and um getting them ready and out the door i'm doing work so by the time i show up at work at nine o'clock i've all already done a few hours worth of work Mm -hmm. um same thing with the evenings and so 
if it's a day where I've spent my entire day meeting with people to ask for money, to explain injustices in our systems, in our education system, in our um, in the environmental movement, in how we access funds and how we're treated as black and brown leaders here as a woman of color, I'm depleted by six o'clock. For sure. Um, and so I, I try to put some boundaries in place and I'm trying to recoup my weekends and really um, practice what I preach mm-hmm. um, in the sense that Nature and being in the outdoors is a healing space for me. Man. That's been part of um, the journey that I've been on in doing this work and trying to connect kids of color with science and with nature. I've realized how much was missing in my own um, upbringing and education around traditional ways of connecting with the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I'm working more with indigenous communities and I'm learning their stories and their ways of thinking and the relationships that they hold dear and have with the natural world, I'm allowing myself to learn from that and try to integrate it into my own practices. Mm. Um so that's I have some, a sit some, spot. That's some good integration right there. Yeah, it's yes. you know it's um, it's shifting shifting your mindset around um, the outdoors and and also recognizing the historical trauma and things that we've been through as Black people. Yeah, you know, um, and holding both of those at the same time. That being in a forest, I can find both healing there, and I come face to face with some of my fears and reminders about the historic uh, the history of our people. For sure. Yeah. Tell me about what it was like transitioning from corporate America, doing this Mm -hmm. while you had a full-time job, Mm -hmm. pushing. I know how hard you worked. And then from leaving the comfort and some, you know, so-called security of corporate America Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. just going Mm -hmm. full-time into this work as as the executive director. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say um, my transition, like I've worked for a few corporations, but really I've worked for some larger corporations institutions that were still consider uh consider nonprofits and so um the the four or five years prior to starting Elso, I was working in development. I was learning fundraising and kind of moving up the ranks in that world. So from planning fundraising events um, like walkathons uh, to galas to then being able to learn about um, major gifts, um, individual donations, um, individual giving, and um, capital campaigns. So I've I've learned and practiced those skills, which was a real, a key piece of one of the things that I had to know in order to launch this nonprofit successfully. Um, I think one of the areas that nonprofits struggle with, regardless of their size, is um, asking for money and being able to have the resources that you need to do the work. So I feel like I, um, I started Elso with that experience already of how to ask for money and some understanding of the the landscape of philanthropy in Oregon. And that definitely has helped um, in our successes in growing so quickly over the last five years. Um, I think in one fiscal year, we raised over $100,000, and that was only six months after I had quit my full-time job. Um, so I, I remember vividly, and I think it was at one of our board retreats um, when you were still on the board, mm-hmm. where um, or board meetings, excuse me, not retreat. You asked me, what would it look like for Elso to run if we didn't have to worry about money? Mm-hmm. If you had a million dollars and didn't, ha- didn't have to think about it, what would it look like? And 
when you asked me that, my mind automatically went to, well, we don't have that money, so I'm not even going to think about that. Mm. And you said it again, and then I had to repeat it to myself a number of times for me to really see that what you were asking was, what is the vision for this organization, this program, mm -hmm. um, if resources were not a barrier? Right. And I think I spent the next three months or so painting that out. And by painting it out, I mean I had giant sticky notes at my house. I had notebooks. I had computer tabs pulled up. I had done months of research to kind of paint a picture of um, the needs of uh, um, within the STEM fields for educating kids of color, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, um, the needs of the environmental fields, mm -hmm. um, and the needs of kids of color, and how do I bring those things together, and how do I fill a gap without duplicating services that other nonprofits were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and once I had that kind of laid out, it was a matter of presenting it to the board, having the board um, be, you know, 100% in support, and then me feeling like I could, whether or not I could take that leap to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to give a shout out to Jesse Brown again, because I wouldn't be sitting here, I wouldn't even be doing this work if it wasn't for my husband seeing my fears, seeing my potential and speaking encouragement into me to say, you can do this. You mm. already have the skill set as a leader. You have the passion, the knowledge, the experience to do it. Just do it. Like we're going to be fine. Money wise, we'll be fine. Just go ahead and do it. Mm. And um, I was terrified. Mm. And to think that like I would leave my day job where I was making good money, mm. like, like really good money in the nonprofit field mm. um, to go into having to fundraise my entire salary mm -hmm. and to have to go out and now um, have this program be dependent on my hard work, whether or not it succeeds or fails. Got to go out in the wilderness for yeah. real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think that that next, I think that was in like summer of 20, uh, 2018, maybe mm -hmm. 20, 2017, 2018. And then, um, by that next uh, year, you know, I went from part-time um, ED to full-time ED and was able to get paid. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, we worked our butts off with fundraising, with site visits, with um, launching our Green Line event. Mm -hmm. And um, what I quickly realized was that Portland was hungry for this, yeah. that the work was so needed. Um, and despite my constant state of exhaustion and always feeling overwhelmed by the amount of work that there is to do mm -hmm. um that i was making a difference that i that i felt like i had come full circle in seeing my potential in science and um and being able to support future scientists without having to be a doctor right yeah yeah so you're just doing it a different way yep and, yeah. and inspiring hundreds mm -hmm. at this point. Like yeah. over the years, it's going to be hundreds of kids that have gone through yeah. the program. And so tell me about, you know, what what you what's the what's the feedback you've been getting from parents and the students that have been going yeah. to these camps? Like mm -hmm. what are they saying? What's encouraging you to let you know that you guys are on the right path? Yeah, um, I think the the number one thing that we hear from families, from parents, um, especially is um that 
having leaders who look like their kids, their children, mm. is the most important part of that summer camp. Mm. Um, the camp guides all identify as black or brown, um, as well as our staff. And even though we still partner with um, different agencies and institutions that have white educators that come in, we're very intentional about the role that we have them play within the camp mm -hmm. so that we can make sure that our power dynamics are in such a way that the kids can still see leaders of color in these positions and around them and affirming them. Mm -hmm. So that identity affirmation piece that comes across in how our program looks and feels is is very important to families. Mm. Um, the other thing, some of the other pieces of feedback that we've heard is the all-day structure. You know, a lot of the different programs that are um, for children out there, especially for young children, they're not a full day. Mm -hmm. um, and they're expensive. And so we have a sliding scale. Um, and if the sliding scale is is still inaccessible, and then we work with families. I'm open to bartering. I'm open to whatever we need to do if a family feels like it's important for their kid to be in our program. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing that I hear from families and also from funders is the intentionality around the way that we're doing our work, the way that we are working to redefine science around how we are trying to um, decolonize um, STEM education and um, and the way that we approach environmental education with a justice lens and elevating um, indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge, that's where the gap is. That's mm. the need that we're meeting that um, few others are doing. And um, there are other organizations that are doing work like this. I want to be clear that Camp Elso is not at all the first. Mm -hmm. It's just that we, all of our different organizations have worked on such a grassroots and community-based level um, and have always had to depend on white institutions for support mm -hmm. that it is very difficult um, to build a culture of an organization that centers folks of color. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Hands down. Like, Thank doing you. a great job. Um, walk us through the camp, the summer mm -hmm. camp, the mm -hmm. structure of it. Mm -hmm. What does a typical day or yeah. week look like mm -hmm. for Camp Elso? Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, our, our, so our kids come from across the Portland metro area. So from Gresham to Vancouver, Washington to Hillsboro. Mm. They all are dropped off in the morning at a centralized hub that's in North Port Portland. Mm -hmm. um, we partner with a local church um, and we take over basically their multi-purpose rooms and some of their different classroom spaces and even their sanctuary, um, depending on the day. Mm -hmm. um, so our kids are dropped off there and... Um, this past year, so our program is shifting just a little bit, so I'm going to talk about why it's shifting and how and that need for that type of, of um, growth and program development. Mm -hmm. So for the last few years, we've been taking kids out on field trips every day of the week, Monday through Friday. They get dropped off. We pack their snacks. Um, we provide protein-rich, healthy food, fresh fruits and veggies, mm. jerky. It's mostly organics, mm. donated by local businesses. It's mostly sourced here around this area, um, local fruits. Um, they pack up their snacks, throw their, fill up their water bottles, meet up with their camp guide, 
um, find out, kind of get grounded in whatever the, the goal is of the day and how it fits in the overall theme of the week. Then we load them up in uh, 15 passenger vans and we head out. Um, those sites, we might head to the beach. We might be heading to um, the mountains. We might be heading to a local park, a city park. Um, we go on a different field trip every day of the week. And um, what they're doing on that field trip relates to the theme. So um, the kids are doing, they might be doing water testing, looking at macro invertebrates, um, learning about the local species, about um, native plants, about invasive plants. Mm. Um, some of our field trips are to landfills that are now prairies, so kids can learn about um what happens to our trash. So instead of just teaching them how to recycle and why we recycle plastics, we take them to a place where they can see where their trash goes, talk about where that landfill is in relation to the city landscape. Mm -hmm. The fact that our landfills are often in historically black or brown communities or low-income communities. Um, and then we, they have free time at the places. So that free time might be kayaking. It might be um, playing in the ocean. Um, uh, it might be doing artwork as they're drawing plants and learning about medicinal uses of plants. Um, this year, one of the partnerships I'm really excited about is with the Wind and Oar Boat School. Um, our middle school cohorts are going to be learning about waterways and salmon. And so they're going to be learning about our local river systems. And they're going to be building a boat that they're going to take out to the river and launch. And so they're going to wow. be doing engineering and math by building a boat while also learning about waterways and water travel. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that's kind that of the way that we awesome. yeah. bring in science concepts, environmental issues, and still make sure it's grounded in a racial or social justice lens. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. And so how many weeks this summer? Mm -hmm. So this summer there are um, four weeks. So it's the entire month of July. Okay. And there are five different things, themes, community science, photojournalism, storytelling and environmental justice, um, waterways, and... Oh, I feel like I always forget one. <laughs> It'll come back. You got to a me. lot on your plate. I do, I do. Sure. And so um, we take out um, a cohort of twelve kids, mm -hmm. um, load them up, and they have it's a low student camp guide ratio, and so they'll have two camp guides with each age group, and um, each age group, so kindergarten through second grade, three, four five, six, and seventh, eighth graders are all in their different age segments, and they'll go out to different field trips. Mm -hmm. um, one of the new initiatives that we're launching this year is Water Wednesdays. I'm so excited about Water Wednesdays. Mm, I'll tell you about on? that for what's a minute. Okay. Yeah. So um, do you know how to swim? No. Okay. No. So <laughs> you need to join us for nah, Water Wednesdays. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you know, the way my body is set up, you know, the way my lungs are set up, they work good. Outside of the water? Aha, uh -huh, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> on the lands, on yeah, the dry land, on the yeah. Land, I'm good. So, um, 
Water Wednesdays is our way of starting a new initiative that's looking at um, the the drownings that happen um, at a higher rate within black and brown communities with mm. black and brown children. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids, by and large, don't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. That is not commonly taught in black communities. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. There are um, historical things that have happened, racism that has prevented black children from being able to access swim lessons, um, even access pools, because back in the day, we weren't allowed to go to the community oh, pools and sure. learn swimming. Segregation was real. Yep, it, it was real. It's a thing. To, yeah. Yep. And, and that swimming. is now why um, black and brown children um, swim or know how to swim at a lower rate than white children. Mm-hmm. And so we want to do something about that. Yeah. We feel like um, as an organization that is both about serving black and brown children and the outdoors, that swimming is a necessary skill. It's a life-saving skill that we want all of our kids to be able to learn. Mm-hmm. So on Wednesdays, um, each week, um, for all the age groups, they're going to do some type of water-related activity. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be a swim lesson at a local aquatic center that's being professionally taught by by people who, who know how to do that. Um, it might be kayaking or canoeing. Um, we have some water days planned at the marina with fishing, but we are just trying to work on getting our kids comfortable around water, making sure they're learning water safety and learning the skills to save their own life or save somebody else's life if they have to. For sure. Um, we still love hanging out at the water. I'm sure you love going oh, to the beach. Yeah, right. Definitely, so definitely. so black or brown people, we still go to these I get my places feet wet. all the time, right? Uh-huh. And so we just want to make sure that our kids know how to be safe and have every the same access to quality swim instruction. And so we figured we would carve out time on our Wednesday field trips to do that. Yeah. I mean, I you know, my son knows how to swim, Elijah knows mm-hmm. how to swim. I think he learned when he was like maybe eight years old yeah or maybe not was it last summer i think this past summer Mm -hmm. he he already knew how to float Mm -hmm. but like we made sure he could go in a deep end and all that dive off the diving board so Mm -hmm. it just made me proud to see him do it because i you know (laughs) when i was when i was coming up actually everybody in my family knows how to swim except Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. and so i'm still beefing with my parents to this day (laughs) because it just it just got to a point where you know i was the fourth the youngest and it got to a point where like my my sisters um they learned my brother learned and my mom she was a stay-at-home mom mm-hmm. at, some, at one point in time and then she she went back to work when I was like five or six mm-hmm. and so when she went back to work all of the going to Columbia pool and yes. going to the park going to peninsula like all that kind of slowed down mm-hmm. and so I kind of got left out yeah and I'm still a otter mm-hmm I believe and when it comes to the the level <laughs> the skill uh-huh. and so as a grown man you will see me with my arms extended from the wall and me kicking my feet in the water cuz I'm still at that level. I, that's that's yeah. where I stopped learning at the age of 5 or 6 years old. So mm-hmm. um but I have I'm at peace with not knowing how to swim. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm good, but I do want my kids mm-hmm. to know how to swim. So mm-hmm. Elijah's good. Like I remember the first time I seen him like jump off a diving board, go yeah. down, touch the floor, yes. come up. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> like I almost had a heart attack. Uh-huh. But he does it all the time now. It's yeah. like, yeah, that's 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 yeah. amazing. And so, so that's what we want to see: like yeah. more kids that 
are doing what Elijah's doing, having that confidence to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And you know that if he goes on a field trip with his class, if they're around a pool or a lake or whatever, that he's going to be safe. He knows how to take care of himself. I'm still scared of him swimming in a lake or like a river Mm -hmm. because people like people go to Sandy River every summer and they know how to swim. But it'd be Mm -hmm. like those currents. Yes. And all that type of stuff. People get they they lay caught on something Mm -hmm. or what. I don't know. So, yeah, I'm still scared of that. And that that happens, um, which is part of what what um, pushed me to create this initiative because Mm -hmm. last summer there was a drowning at Oxbow Park Mm -hmm. um, in the Sandy River where we take kids to. And I think it was the week before we were planning to go out there. So I remember sending that letter to parents and just trying to get ahead of it and let people know like these are what this is the steps that we're taking to make sure your kids are safe. This is where we're swimming. This is the knowledge that we have around you know how to be safe at this particular site. Mm -hmm. You know we have our own lifeguard that we bring with us but but it really pushed me to see that um, you you can you have to prepare kids for whatever those life situations are, and that it was our responsibility as a as a summer program mm-hmm. to give kids access to learning that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned a few times. I love this, like decolonizing. And so, yeah. tell me about how you intentionally, mm-hmm. when you go out to these campsites. Um, decolonize like the language that they use or maybe that you're using with the kids um just how does how does that work how does that play out yeah um you know i don't know that the kids um necessarily notice it too much but Mm -hmm. the way that it shapes our work is in how we teach and train our camp guides Mm -hmm. and what type of field trips we go on and who we who we work with Mm -hmm. um to the extent that we now have a partnership checklist, an assessment tool that we use to evaluate each and every one of our partners to see where they are and if they're, one, prepared to be our partner and to work with us and where they are with doing their own work to be able to support kids of color. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we started uh, earlier this year, I would say uh, fall of twenty. 19, we started looking at how we were defining science. How is science defined? Mm -hmm. And how does it impact how we teach it? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that happened is because, you know, it's one of our key, um, key pillars, key elements to share and elevate the stories of um, black and brown environmentalists and to bring in the knowledge, indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, um, what what we found was there's a conflict between Western science and Western knowledge and traditional or cultural knowledge. Mm, mm, and mm. we didn't want to privilege Western science. We want kids to have exposure to it because that's the system of higher education and science in our world that they would be working in. Um, but we wanted them to have the foundational knowledge of cultural knowledge um, from different cultural perspectives and traditional in indigenous knowledge. So you mean to tell me the Western isn't the foundational? No. <laughs> no. no. Oh, no. Okay. Interesting. No, but most <laughs> of the way that we teach science and how science is taught in classrooms from kindergarten through higher ed mm-hmm. is from that Western framework. Right. You know, um, and on a very linear way of thinking about things. Mm. Um, indigenous knowledge teaches us that there is a relational worldview. Um, and it looks at mind, body, spirit, soul, um, as equal things 
that impact something, not just on a straight line. It's very European to think of things on a straight line. Mm. Um, so we wanted to present science um, in a way that gave kids access to learn traditional knowledge, which might be um, the medicinal use of plants. I used that example before. In a different, in addition to understanding the photosynthesis and plant structure and plant parts. Okay. Now we not we not having no peace pipes or drinking no fire water out in the wilderness. Are what's going <laughs> no, on? No, no, no. That's for the adults now. Come on. Yeah. Now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, uh, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm still sorry. laughing. I'm like, I'm like, no, none of that. The, but the, um, the medicinal purposes. Of, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 But you, you, you talked, you asked about um, decolonizing it. So that's what I was going to say. So the feedback that we got from our camp guides, which are high school and college students is, um, we love the way that, that Elsa was talking about science, but we don't know how to have those conversations with kids. Mm. And so we, when we started thinking about, okay, how do we train high school students to have a environmental justice conversation with kids? And mm. by that, I mean, like, we're going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about um, um, how our forests look different now. We're going to talk about why our ice pack is melting, why the globe is heating up. Those are all different topics of climate change. And we're going to talk about it through an environmental justice lens, which means we're thinking about how it impacts folks of color. Mm -hmm. um, so we realized that we needed to define for ourselves science. Um, and so we started thinking about, well, what, what does science mean? What does it look like? It's always of knowing. It is looking at the interconnectedness between relationships of the land and people. It is uh, revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And it is outside of the classroom. In fact, it is outside, um, not even in labs. You can be anywhere and you can be learning science. Right. And so from that foundation, that's when we started building out our um, rotating science framework mm. because we then said, okay, if we're trying to decolonize the way that we're teaching science, how do we know that we're doing this all the time? Is it a one-off thing? Is it Western science one day and traditional knowledge the other way? How do we give kids a seamless experience and, and looking at a particular topic like waterways, like rivers, and understand it from both a traditional um a traditional and cultural way and from a Western way. Mm. So we can teach about salmon and climate change and we can also talk about um, uh, sustainable fishing and salmon as a food source uh, for traditional communities and how that food source is depleted because of climate change. So, mm. yeah. That's dope. Mm -hmm. That's dope. Just a different view. Mm -hmm. of what's really going on mm -hmm. because I think it kind of in intimidates us yeah because it, it doesn't necessarily make sense yeah. like the way that science is taught and when you mm -hmm. think of science you think of a lab coat mm -hmm. you think of chemicals mm -hmm. you know and it's just like it's not appealing to mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. you think of a white guy in a white coat yeah. with some glasses on mm -hmm. and some beakers or something mm -hmm. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. so I'm just like yeah, science I'm good yeah you know? and the flip side of that is 
we don't think about the things that we learned from our grandmother as being science. Oh you know, goodness. like I learned. We, we make um, fun of that stuff. We do. We do. We, we like, say all oh. black people, they just them old <laughs> black south, southern remedies. Like, nah. Yes. Yeah. No, nah, they, they really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Putting, putting some Vicks on the bottom of your feet and yep. putting socks on when you're sick. Exactly. I don't know what it is, exactly. but it works. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. Taking fish oil and all these different things. Growing your own garden and um, finding your medicine in the backyard where you go out and you pick your elderberries and you bring them in and you can make that syrup that you can go and pay $30 for in the grocery store. Right, right. Yeah, and so that's what we're trying to do with these kids is show them that science is accessible, science is all around you, Mm -hmm. that you are already a scientist. You don't have to wait for some white person in college to validate your existence to Mm. be there. You already know how to think scientifically, how to go through that process of asking questions, critical questions, gathering information, um, conducting your own research and making a conclusion. And mm-hmm. that's really all that science is about teaching is how to go through that process, that that's thinking it. process. That's and it's it. that process that is transferable across all disciplines. So whether our kids decide to be scientists or not, they're going to know how to have that thinking process. Now, there is one unscientific thing mm-hmm. that we do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and say it. <laughs> My wife, this is what she does. When she gets sick, uh-huh. she swear to God, if she drinks some ginger ale, eats some saltine crackers, she going to get better. I'm like, babe, that, that's not. Wait, are you talking about like stomach sickness, like the flu? Or are we talking about like a common cold? Man, any type of sickness. I don't feel That's what good. she does? That's her remedy? Ginger ale and saltine crackers. Like, babe, you might need some medicine. <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't. I know that's what mom and them did back in yep. the day. My parents did too. But I don't really think yeah. scientifically we go repeat <laughs> that process. I don't think that's gonna do anything. But yeah, know. yeah, we we learn all kinds of things from our um, families, and you know, pass down these different traditions around healing and medicine. And mm-hmm. some of them are spot on, and some of them are still old wives' yeah. tales. But for the most part, mm-hmm. especially like if you had a grandma that was from the south, yep. like they knew some things mm-hmm. until you do. You like, do what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It worked, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yep. all that matters. <laughs> exactly. That's all that matters. So I want to wrap yeah. this up with the Fat Five. Okay. Five questions that I ask everybody. Okay. First question, two-part question. Um, what is your favorite genre of music? Ooh. Um, I think it's reggae. Because I can put reggae on and it doesn't matter if it's snowing outside or if it's 100 degrees, it makes me feel good. Mm, And it makes me feel like I'm on a permanent vacation (laughs) and I'm just far away from Portland. Um, Was there an artist or album in particular that made you fall in love with it? Or is it just a general sound? Just in general. I think it's just general. You know, I love all the Marleys. I love Ziggy Marley. I love Bob Marley. Like all the Marleys. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that there was... um, social justice in the lyrics yeah. i like that it had community i like that they would sing about food like it's you know <laughs> reggae music can be about anything right. you know you just makes you feel iry i love it yeah i love reggae music though mm-hmm. second question we kind of touched on this already but um when you feel overwhelmed how do you de-stress mm-hmm. um i try to get outside yeah. i try to get outside and as far away from city noises as possible and just ground myself and um decenter connect with something outside of myself beyond me mm-hmm. um and um take a walk yeah mm-hmm. there's something about just being outside and mm-hmm. taking a walk mm-hmm. that is very therapeutic yes like we have a dog now i know y'all just got a dog yeah. too right uh-huh. so 
I've been walking my dog and every time I walk him, it's unintentionally like 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah. And now it's just like I look forward to it because mm-hmm. I'm just I just want to get outside and walk and mm-hmm. get some fresh air and get some yeah. sun. Yeah. And it was something that I had read. Somebody was saying like, um, like, t- like thirty minutes or an hour in the mm-hmm. wilderness mm-hmm. will it does something to your body yeah. as far as like the all of the negative um energy that we get because of all this technology mm-hmm. and wi-fi and this mm-hmm. radiation like if you just go without your phone into the wilderness that kind of yeah. like clutter like declutters your mind from all of that mm-hmm. stuff have you heard of anything like yeah. that? yeah okay. so um what you're speaking about is forest medicine or um shinrin yoku okay and um it is an ancient um type of medicine that um originates in japan okay. and um basically what it what it talks about is um, I think a 60 minutes is that ideal amount of time where if you can get outside spend 60 minutes and there's different things that you can do while you're out there so one of the things you can do is take your shoes off um, I know most people are like what take your shoes off in the forest but mm. go barefoot mm. let your skin actually come in contact with the earth that there mm. are um, positive and negative ions that are transferred between your yeah, body the and the earth that yeah. helps um, ground you Um I heard that one of the most harmful inventions ever made was shoes, rubber soles. Wow. And that's because that rubber becomes a, a buffer, a neutralizer between the, the ion transmission that happens between our bodies and the earth. Because we're, we're made from the same materials that our earth is For made out of, sure. whether from a spiritual lens or just a biological, physical, biological yeah. lens, we come from it. And For so sure. that that's disconnecting us. Wow. Um, but do that and then quiet your mind, try to listen to the sounds you use your senses. So you, you want to touch, um, taste if you know what, what is safe to eat, um, and smell. And if you notice like the forests have that sweet smell, Mm. the air is sweet, especially, um, after a rainy season, but Shinrin Yoku, there's some great books out there about the power of forest medicine, Mm. um, for our physical health. It helps decrease your blood pressure, um, hypertension, um, and also for your mental health too. Wow. Yeah. See, I I'm definitely not opposed. I love walking barefoot, like mm-hmm. in my back or just on grass. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. Like that's that's amazing. Yeah. I'm a little scared of doing it in the forest. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna lie to you because mm-hmm. of the bugs. And yeah. You never know what you might step on. <laughs> yes. But uh, I love going to the beach for sure. Put yeah. my feet in the sand and just like, yeah. who doesn't love burying their feet in the sand exactly. and feeling that cold? <laughs> But still warm sensation. Yeah. And so now you know that is literally the same um, sensation or the same type of healing for your body as taking some type of pill. So I encourage your listeners to spend as much time as possible. Start with 30 minutes, increase it to 60 minutes. Just finding quiet. You don't have to hike. You're not out there Mm -hmm. to actually move and do. Just be. Be still. I love it. I love the beach. I love the sand. Yeah. The last time I went to San Diego, like mm-hmm. three or four years ago, mm-hmm. I told my wife, I was like, babe, let's move here. Like, yes. I just, just being out on the beach, and there's yeah. so much beach, and it's obviously always sunny in mm-hmm. San Diego, and there was just a level of peace and comfort that I had. Mm-hmm. I'm just, yo, I need this. Yeah. You never know how much you need it until you experience it, and mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, I didn't know what I was missing. Right. And so, yeah, yeah I... <laughs> I connect on that level. I don't swim. Yeah. But I even asked her, like, hey, I, I think I should learn how to to, to surf because, like, <laughs> that look fun. She's like, uh-huh. man, you know, good and well. <laughs> 
<laughs> you ain't gonna last. Do you last. taste that salt water though? Oh, oh, it's that bad, foul huh? Taste. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach, who would it be and why? Um, Michelle Obama, hands down. Um, is it really? <laughs> I think, you know, because she is so down to earth and relatable. Like mm-hmm. you see your own story in in her. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like she is pretentious. It doesn't seem like she's changed because they got famous. I'm sure she has. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I just feel like she and I could talk so much about college, about balancing work and motherhood. Like she would just be the person that I knew would... I know would keep it real, encourage me, um, and help me just to keep growing and keep learning and keep being a better person. What is it about Michelle, though? Because to be honest, I haven't really paid too much Mm -hmm. attention to her Mm -hmm. life and Mm -hmm. her personality. Have you read Becoming? I have not. You should read it. So um, if you read I the would book, say you're be a fan, I, huh? I think the book helps because I hadn't thought much about her um, before reading that book, and I, I okay. think the only reason I even picked up that book is because um, some book club that I wanted to join was um, was reading it next. So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm gonna start reading this book. Um, I don't think I actually finished it because I got to the point of where they were in the White House, and I was like, okay, I feel like I know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know all that part. that part. But it was hearing about her story, her life, mm-hmm. just her what her everyday day-to-day existence was as a black woman mm-hmm. that led up to this and she mm-hmm. and I felt like it it um it felt authentic it felt real I don't know you never know how much of it is real but um having her share some of the things that happened like I literally saw myself in that book and I was like she and I would have been girlfriends in college wow, yeah. and um it gave me so much to talk about with my actual girlfriends and all of us we all saw ourselves in there so mm. I and I don't read autobiographies regularly. It's mm-hmm. not the type of book I would pick up to read, let alone a famous person's. Right. Um, but that was one book that I felt like I, I learned something from in each chapter. Um, I also like seeing her relationship with Barack and it humanized him. I actually liked him a little bit less after I read it and liked her way more. Really? <laughs> yeah. What, what but Barack I, did? What did do? Just some, some personality things about Uh-oh. him. Just like, I was just like, huh, I think I like her better. But, mm. but seeing their relationship and feeling like what we see in the media and how they're portrayed in that and how they seem to be um, behind the scenes. Now, granted, it's still through this book, mm-hmm. but it seemed... Um, Sincere. Mm, that's yeah. dope. Yeah. I got an inkling to ask this, and mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't done this, mm-hmm. but just because I, I hear M- Michelle Obama so much, like mm-hmm. I'm gonna just take this in a different direction, just slightly. Yeah. If there was any one celebrity reality star that could be your life coach, who would it be? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Of all of the face. all of the wealth on of content that we have on VH1. Uh-huh. Um gosh, I'm like, the most what redeeming... reality shows are out there now? Does Shark Tank count as a reality show? Probably not. Uh, nah, <laughs> no, I'm talking about the Um Probably Cardi B. Cardi. I think Cardi because I'm like the fact that you can just show up, say what you want to say, yeah. be your full self and not Worry about what other people think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something I can learn from that. It's yeah. it's admirable. So For yeah, sure. yeah. I'm trying to think who would who would be my <laughs> person from reality TV. Huh. Um, let me think. There's 
loving hip hop. Mm-hmm. The the low hanging fruit for me would be Joe Budden because he's also you know what that is no. Joe Budden the rapper loving hip hop. He's been all over hip hop for loving hip hop for a minute. I really watch reality TV. That's okay. why I say Cardi B. She's the okay. person I know. Word word. <laughs> I would say Joe. He's a uh, he's a podcaster. He's a dude that just tells it like it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there's some, you know. Oh my gosh! Can what? I change my answer? Go ahead. I just realized huh. Kevin Hart just came out with the show. Remember his reality TV show? He's not a reality TV star. Though. Well, I'm counting. He's a, he's I'm a counting. Grown... I changed my answer. It's Kevin Hart. <laughs> Kevin. All right, I'll give you Kevin. Kevin Hart. He did do the real real husbands of Hollywood. There we go. Yeah. That's reality. Okay, yeah, Kevin Hart. So you want him to coach you? <laughs> yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Very successful. <laughs> All right. Um, this question is actually pretty similar to what I asked you. I even I forgot I asked you that question. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't incorporate this question until like recently so if yeah. you woke up tomorrow and found out that you won a, the lottery for a hundred million dollars how would you mm-hmm. spend your money and your time from that day forward hmm. um i think a hundred million a hundred million let's go million. that's a, that's a good amount yeah um i would um put a big chunk of it. I don't know the exact number, but I put a big chunk of it into an endowment fund so my money could keep making money okay. and I'd start a foundation. Um and I would fund um um entrepreneurship, science, innovation from in black and brown communities. I'd put resources into different communities around the world to fund that work happening just mm-hmm. at the community level. Mm-hmm. Um and then I think with a with a small piece of it, I'd make sure that my family's needs were taken care of, so I could just do community work and um, just do things that supported the legacy of Black people for future generations. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do mm, with dope. the endowment. I don't want the money to go away ever. What you gonna do for yourself? I don't know. Is if I don't have to work, if I know my family's needs million. are taken care of, yeah, then then I'm good. I just want to be out there. I want to be out there supporting my people, uh, making other people's dreams come true. So that's dope. That's what I would do. That's good. Yeah. I just thought about this now too. Mm-hmm. The the 501c3, just mm-hmm. this vehicle that we use. Yes. This thing that has been constructed in our society to mm-hmm. be able to do this type of work. Mm-hmm. Um, if that did not exist, hmm. how do you think you would go about the work that you do? Um, if a nonprofit status didn't exist, like right. if, a, if the option to create a nonprofit corporation, right. um, I think I would go about setting up a SUSU to have parents um, mm. and community members Break pay that down. Everybody don't fund. know what SUSU is. So, yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm not at all the expert of this. Yeah. But how I understand it is each person takes a certain amount of money. So mm-hmm. let's say $100. Mm-hmm. You put it into a pot mm-hmm. and um, that pot builds up over time. And each person who put $100 into the pot can then take that whole pot so if you got 10 people putting in 100, you can take that whole pot and use it forever, whatever you want. And then you um, you put the money back, you pay the money back and then the next person borrows it. Mm. So it's a it's a way of investing your money in community versus yeah. versus corporate banking. Right. And it's a way of um, having financial um financial freedom that is in a community model. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. that's like that's an African based. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it derived in Africa, but mm-hmm. most things did. So I believe it that it did. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've heard Dr. Amos Wilson talk about mm-hmm. that. He's the first person I heard talk about it. Yeah. And then I heard a song by Jadena. That okay. About it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, look at Jadena. But uh-huh. he's, he, I think his father's Nigerian as well. Yeah. So, yeah. of course, he would get yeah. that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would I would use that model because um, philanthropy will have us thinking that black and brown people don't invest money into their communities. Mm. And we give above and beyond oftentimes um our white counterparts Mm -hmm. um, when you take into context um, how much resources our communities have. Per capita, for sure. Mm -hmm. Per capita. But most of our giving goes to one organization. Hmm. And that organization doesn't necessarily reciprocate it back to everybody. Yeah. The way that you're talking about. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Mm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Wow. We do give more. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Final question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what message do you want communicated at your eulogy? Um, I think um, I would want people to know that I lived out um, my values, that I prioritize community, and that I lived um, a life of integrity um, and put centered Jesus, centered God through the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I um, was a a mother that my kids would look back on and be thankful for and be proud of. Mm. Yeah. Simply put, mm-hmm. don't get no better than that. No. Sprinter, mm-hmm. I thank you for coming out. This yeah. is an awesome conversation. Thank you for sharing your time yes. and your wisdom with us. Um, how can people reach out to you or mm-hmm. find out more about Camp Elso mm-hmm. on the socials? Go ahead yeah. and do that. Yeah. Um, so Camp Elso can be found at www.campelso.org. That's E-L-S-O dot org. And put the um, camp in front because we try to yes, do Elso. Yes, put camp in front. You're going to find some <laughs> information about the Zika, yes. not the Zika, the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're on Instagram. I post a little on Facebook. Not mm-hmm. as much, but Instagram definitely. Um, and I'm at Sprinavasa at campelso.org. So I, I love hearing from people from the community um and thank you thank you for having me on here thank you for inviting me again thank you for doing the work that you do and for supporting elso we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the time that you spent in leading our work i appreciate it we all doing this together we Mm -hmm. all making it happen so Mm -hmm. i'm just i'm glad to be a part of the journey yeah for real it's awesome all right and do you did you put your your social on it are you know yeah, Instagram uh, like yeah Camp Instagram Elso, at Camp Elso at Camp Elso that's it I don't at, tweet I don't I don't know Spr- at Sprinta I don't know no maybe yeah, I don't know you ain't, you ain't trying to put on <laughs> no worry just no. hit up hit up Camp Elso if y'all got any questions yes. um talk about registration yeah. when that, when that is and and if you I'm gonna put a shout out we are um interested in knowing if you live in a community outside of the Portland metro area and mm. this sounds like a program 
or organization that you think your community and your youth oh, would benefit sure. from, yeah. I want to hear from those people because yeah. we're having more and more people say, like, we want you to come here, come to Virginia, come to South Carolina. Yeah. And um, we won't expand unless we know that there's a community need and um, people want us to be there and that we can support the efforts happening at the community level. For sure. So for that email? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Sprintavasa. At CampElso.org. Spell that for everybody. S-P-R-I-N-A-V-A-S-A. At campelso.org. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Once again, y'all, it's the Socks and Sandals podcast where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. Holla at y'all next week. Grace and peace. <laughs>